0: We will be in the first letter of Peter, so if you'd like to open up your Bibles there. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, He did not revile in return. While suffering, He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously. And He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by His wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls." (laughs) For this reason we have been called. Peter was called. Although in Peter's calling, his discipleship to Jesus was not immediate. We may think so. It's really easy to encapsulate things as we read them in Scriptures or, or hear the old stories and we say, oh, that's how it happened. It was quickly and it was immediate. And it's not necessarily the case. If we put it all together, if we piece together the Gospels, we recognize it took a little longer for Peter to lock into discipleship. There were introductions. There were conversations. There even seems to be a friendship struck up between Peter and Jesus before Full-blown discipleship finally set in to Peter's life. Uh, let me show this to you in John chapter one, verses forty through forty-two. We see for the first time Peter's brother Andrew introduces Peter to Jesus. Come see the one we think this might be the Messiah. Now Andrew was a, a disciple of John the Baptist. But then heard Jesus and started to follow Jesus and came and got Peter and brought him and introduced him. Well, time went by, I don't know how much time, but a little bit at least, and later on in Matthew chapter 4 verse 18, we're told as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Shimon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Mark tells us the exact same vignette in Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. Now, if you read Matthew or you read Mark, you might assume that the first time Peter ever saw Jesus was by the sea as he was preparing his nets, and this stranger comes out of nowhere and says, follow me, and Peter weirdly does. But that's not what happened. It wouldn't be until years and years later when John wrote his Gospel that we discover, no, Andrew introduced Peter to Jesus So Peter had a sense of who he was, had talked with him. Before then, ultimately, Jesus said, Hey, follow me. Follow me. But there's even more to the story than that. If you turn over to the book of Luke, go left to Luke, chapter 4. Because it wasn't long that Peter was right back to fishing. Introduced to Jesus, then called by Jesus, But the next time we see Peter, he's fishing again. Peter, Jesus said he's going to make you fishers of men, but now Peter's back to fishing for fish. And in Luke chapter 4, what takes place, pick it up in about verse 38, Luke 4, 38. It says that he got up, that is Jesus, and he left the synagogue and entered Shimon's home. That's Simon, that's Peter. Peter. Shmone's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever and they asked him to help her. And standing over her, he rebuked the fever and it left her and she immediately got up and waited on them. And while the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him and laying his hands on each one of them. He was healing them. Demons were coming out of them, out of many shouting, You are the Son of God. But rebuking them, he would not allow them to speak because they knew him to be the Christ. When day came, Jesus left and went to a secluded place and the crowds were searching for him and came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them. But he said, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. So he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. You would assume Peter was with him, but he was not. Because we discover now in chapter 5 it happened that while the crowd was pressing around Jesus and listening to the word of God he was standing by the lake of Genesaret—that that is Kennerot or the Galilee and he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets and he got into one of the boats which was Shimon's and asking him to put out a little way from the land he sat down and he began teaching the people from the boat. Peter had been out fishing all night. Peter was back to fishing again. How many of your lives are like that? My life like that. Jesus calls us, and we go, yes, Lord, and right back to the boat. And then he calls again. Yes, Lord. Oh, I'll be there, but I gotta fish tonight. Or I got a job to do. I gotta get to work. And Jesus calls, Jesus heals people in our family, heals our life, is in our homes. But then we're back to fishing. Well, see, it was no different for Peter when he had finished speaking, Jesus said in verse 4 to Simon, Put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, if we worked hard all night and caught nothing. But I will do as you say, I'll let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to help to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear. From now on, you will be catching men. He had already called him. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Oh, sounds good. But he's back to, again, fishing for fish. And now Jesus says, from now on, you're going to be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed Him. Again, was that what it was like with you? Hearing His call, finding Him to be a friend, considering Him perhaps even a curiosity, until ultimately, eventually, discipleship began to set in. What does it? What is it that that affects a heart to the point that we will really follow and not just find Christ a curiosity? To the point that we really will engage our lives and say, where you lead I will go. What you say I will do. No matter how difficult, I will follow you, Jesus. What does that to a person? I'll tell you, with Peter, with these various introductions and meetings... And running into Jesus and seeing Him and considering Him, it wasn't the miraculous catch of fish that did it. Peter had already seen the miracles. His own mother-in-law had been healed of her fever. Peter knows healing a mother-in-law, that's an amazing act right there. He had seen healings. He had seen wonders. And now the miraculous catch of fish. No, that wasn't it. Sure, it was amazing. And he was amazed by the miracle. But he was convicted by his own sin. Verse 8 When Simon Peter saw, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. That's the breaking point. The point where you realize Jesus is more than a friend, he's a savior. And you know that you desperately need Him if you are going to be saved. Peter hit that point. And thus began the discipleship of Peter. Now, it wasn't all roses from then on either. I mean, there were moments of great faith. You know, he walked on the water. Well, I thought he sank. Well, that was not a moment of great faith. But it was when he walked. He did step out. We see moments of of, of Peter declaring Jesus to be Mashiach. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He set up at Caesarea Philippi. I mean, great faith that was poured into him by the Father, revealed to him. And we also see moments of great failure, yes, sinking in the waves, standing in the way of Jesus. And of course, denying Jesus as the Christ. This same man who six months earlier said, you are the Christ, now says, I don't even know who he is. It's like uh, Yoda to Luke. If we may borrow off the glorious wisdom of Star Wars. There's one line in The Last Jedi that I thought was really good, where Yoda had said to Luke, I told you to pass on what you have learned. Not just your successes. Pass on your failures. You know, that's discipleship too. Those of you who are discipling others, to pass on what you've learned even through your great failures. We don't hide the failures and only show the successes. We pass on. These are the tough areas of my life. These are the difficulties. Peter went through hardship and failure as, as well as faith. And they're toward the end of Jesus' life, As he warmed himself in the courtyard of Caiaphas. As he stood there by the fires of the enemy. Two people had already questioned his loyalty. Which he made clear after three years of this discipleship. Peter made clear his loyalty was not to Jesus. But after about an hour had passed, and this is Luke 22.59, another man began to insist, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he's a Galilean too. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. You know the story. Peter had a lesson to learn. And that lesson would take time. It often does. While we have revelation, the moment we receive Jesus Christ, it also takes time to learn the lesson of our sanctification. To learn the lesson of following after Jesus, and the lesson Peter would learn. It took three years of discipleship training, and then the catastrophe of the crucifixion, and then the recognition of the resurrection of Jesus. It would take, following that, the renewal of restoration by Jesus at the Sea of Galilee, And the lessons still would need to be learned. Three more decades of apostolic ministry and mission moving around the world. We know from the interactions with Paul, there were still failures by Peter. And great successes. The greatest success of the life of Shimon Peter is faithfulness that even for falling flat on his face, he got back up and continued to follow Jesus. But I believe what you hold in your hands, and the reason I give you all this background, is that 1 Peter, this letter, is the culmination of the comprehension of the essential truth for every disciple of Jesus Christ. It's this letter where it all comes together, where Peter finally can articulate the lesson that he had learned. He wrote this letter about A.D. 62-63. to Peter himself is just two to three years away from his own martyrdom which would take place in A.D. 65 under the brutal, fierce persecutions of Nero in Rome. Tertullian tells us, You have Rome, from which there comes, even in our own hands, the very authority of the apostles themselves. How happy is the church! One which the apostles poured forth all their doctrine along with their blood. Where Peter endures a passion like his Lord's. Where Paul wins his crown in a death like John the Baptist's. And Paul wrote in Philippians one twenty nine: For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer, to suffer For his sake. And I think that that was Peter's greatest life lesson. Look at verse 19 of 1 Peter chapter 2. For this finds favor, he said, if for the sake of conscience toward God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and you're harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer, you patiently endure it. This finds favor or grace with God. Suffering. The theme of the letter is, in a word, suffering. But, but it's more than that. Suffering. Dealing with suffering. There are really just two kinds of suffering in the world. If you boil it all down, you have senseless, stupid suffering. That's one kind. It's that kind of suffering which we either intentionally or inadvertently bring on ourselves or others. Stupid suffering. It can be suffering by inexperience, as in the crash and burn of a 10-year-old overconfidently racing 75 miles downhill on a 1974 Sears three-speed free-spirit bicycle. That's stupid suffering. It was suffering that could have been avoided. It was brought on myself. There's foolish suffering. Suffering that follows statements like this. You don't think those berries were poisonous, do you? (laughs) Or, hey, what does this button do? Or, what a cute cub. I wonder where the mother bear is. See, that's stupid suffering. Senseless. And it can also be senseless suffering by our own sin. Look over in 1st Peter chapter 4 verse 15. Peter says, "Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evil doer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, He's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. That is in the name of Christ. So there is a senseless, stupid, even sinful suffering. That's one kind of suffering. But there's a second kind. It is a sanctifying suffering. A sanctifying suffering. It's suffering that that is good. Good. Yeah, it purifies a person. It makes sense out of our sorrow. It gives worth and value to pain. Jesus gives substance to suffering. Jesus fills suffering with meaning, with with purpose. And we're not just talking about suffering by persecution. Christian brothers and sisters get this. Oftentimes when we address the topic of suffering in the church, we think it has to do with persecution for being a Christian. There is a suffering that is sanctifying that has nothing to do with persecution, although that is definitely indicated in this letter. But even, listen, even in illness, in loss, in hardship, yes, in spiritual battle, in financial distress, all of these different times of suffering, Jesus can and will, if we allow Him to, imbue such suffering with meaning and purpose and even satisfaction. Illness? Illness can be meaningful? Yes. Suffering? Physical disease? Yes. Going through financial hardship can be a good thing? Yeah, if you invite Jesus into it, he brings satisfaction in suffering. And you might say, well, that sounds kind of sadistic. <laughs> Not at all. Look at 1 Peter 5, verse 10. He says, after you have suffered for a little while, and he doesn't qualify it. He doesn't say after you have suffered because you've been taken a stand for Jesus. He just says after you've suffered. As a believer in Jesus... The God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's not sadistic. It's satisfying. It's sanctifying. And what I believe Peter learned from Jesus and through Jesus in life was the lesson of suffering. That suffering is something that can be not a stupid, senseless, or sinful thing, but suffering like the Savior. Look at chapter 2, verse 21. This, my friends, is the key verse of the entire letter. For you have been called for this purpose. What purpose? Well, you've got to go back to verse 20. If when you do what is right and you suffer, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. So pause for a moment. Listen, when you have disease, it's not God saying you're sinning. Well, Rick, I've, I've heard you sit there and say that all disease is the result of sin. Yes, it is. Sin in the world has caused the decay of mankind and the decay of our flesh and has invited disease into the world. But your particular disease may have nothing to do with sin. If I would only done right, I wouldn't be suffering this way. hey, You may have some sort of disease. You may have some sort of life struggle. You may be suffering in some manner of things, but understand, if you've done what is right and you're still suffering, it's not telling you that you've done something wrong. It's that you suffer and you patiently endure it. It finds grace and favor with God, and for this reason you have been called. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps. This is the theme of 1 Peter. Get this down. Sharing the sufferings of Christ. It's not just about suffering, but it's about sharing the sufferings of Christ. This is the life lesson of Peter. This is the lesson of the entire letter sharing the sufferings of Christ it's what the letter is about again over in chapter 4 verse 12 Peter says beloved do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ keep on rejoicing So that also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exultation. In this insightful letter, Peter's going to address several topics. Things that you can pick out as you go. He's going to talk about resurrection. We've already seen that in chapter one. He talks about sanctification and salvation and love and faith and holiness. He's going to address God's sovereignty. He'll speak of His grace and the work of His Holy Spirit. Peter will talk about the church as a new people. He'll deal with the spiritual realm unseen. He talks about sin. He even addresses the devil himself. But the tie that binds all of this together is sharing the sufferings of Christ. And what I find marvelous in this is sharing the sufferings of Christ is not theoretical, it's not even theological. We're talking about actual felt sufferings, suffering experience, a heart, mind, soul and strength. It's the suffering, for example, of a husband or a wife for an unbelieving spouse. It's the suffering of a parent over a prodigal child. It's the suffering of a student surrounded by blind re- rebellious friends. It's the suffering of a navy ensign under ungodly leadership. It's the suffering of a believer in the non-believing workplace. It's the suffering of a saint in the secular world. It is even the suffering of the sick without answer or relief. All of this applies in sharing the sufferings of Christ. What I'm saying is whatever the cause, whatever the case of your suffering, the substance comes as we learn how to suffer with Jesus, how we learn how to share his sufferings. Now, Peter uses two words in this letter, both translated suffer or suffering. You'll see them many times as we read through. It's how we know what the theme of the letter is because it just bursts onto the page. Synonymously, he talks about suffering and suffering as two different words in the Greek in this timely letter. By the way, note that. The letter written around 62 to 63 and the persecutions of Nero would land in 64. This letter is not written as a result of Nero's brutal persecution. How do we know that? Well, there's not enough in the letter to indicate that that was already going on. This letter is preparatory for what's about to hit. Well, how did Peter know that? He didn't, but the Spirit did. And so the Spirit brings this letter into this region at just the right time. To encourage and strengthen and build up and prepare the people for what was about to come upon them in a horrible way. The suffering that was about to hit. Now these two words, sufferings and suffer. In the Greek, the first word is pathema. You see it back in chapter 1, verse 11, where he talks about the sufferings of Christ. Pathema. It's where we get the word Pathos. And it means passion. It's a passionate suffering. Three out of the four times pathema is used in this letter, it refers specifically to the sufferings of Christ. The pathema of Christ. And so that word is used four times. Well, there's another word that is used eleven more times referring to suffering itself, and that's pashko. And pashko means felt suffering. Felt suffering, again, not theoretical suffering, not discussing difficulties or hardship, but that suffering that you feel, you're aching, you're laboring over it, felt suffering. We see it in chapter 2 verses 20 and 21 where he says in verse 21, you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you. Leaving you an example to follow in his steps. Felt suffering. Real, tangible suffering. And so Peter uses these two words together 15 times in this five-chapter letter. That's five times more than in any other New Testament writing, including the Gospels. So suffering is the theme. Just as an introduction, let me give you quickly an outline to follow. And then I want to show you something. Here's a working outline. Number one, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, which we covered on Wednesday night, is what I would call suffering and salvation. Suffering and salvation. That's part one. Uh, part two, picking up in verse 10 of chapter 1 to the end of that chapter, verse 25, is suffering and the scriptures. Suffering and the scriptures. Part three. I'll give you these one more time. Part three, suffering and the Savior, which takes place in chapters two through four, the bulk of the letter, sharing the sufferings of Christ. Suffering and the Savior. And then finally, the fourth part is suffering and the second coming, which is the last chapter of the book, chapter five. So again, chapter one, verses one through nine, suffering and salvation. Chapter one, verses ten through twenty-five, suffering and the Scriptures. Chapters two through four, suffering and the savior. And finally, chapter five, suffering and the second coming. And he ends the letter, or at least the lesson, at the end of chapter five, verse ten, by saying, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Sharing the sufferings of Christ. This is such a profound and powerful letter because in it, the Spirit teaches us that all suffering, specifically, even when you're doing right, not suffering for sin, but all suffering that may not make any sense to us has meaning and purpose and value when it is shared with Jesus. How do we do that? I mean, you might even be thinking, is it really even possible to share the sufferings of Christ? I thought no one ever suffered like he did. Truly. Truly, no one has. Isaiah 52.14 says, "...His appearance was marred more than any man, and His form more than the sons of man." No one has been marred like Jesus was marred. Isaiah 53, verse 3, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. By the way, Isaiah 53 is Peter's text for 1 Peter. He refers to it many times either implicitly or explicitly in this letter Isaiah 53 the suffering of Christ and it's all true that no one suffered like Jesus it's all true that no one could suffer like Jesus and yet we're called to share in his sufferings look at 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 13 again he says but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ keep on rejoicing So he says we are to share those sufferings. What does that mean? How does that look? Well, first of all, the word share. To share the sufferings of Christ. It's a favorite word of many of us. A favorite Greek word. It's koinoneo. Where we get the word koinonia. We like that word. It means fellowship. You know, it's what happens in the foyer before you come in to the sanctuary. It's what happens at a potluck. It's what happens at a brunch. Fellowship. Just being around other Christians, there's a joy there and a comfort there. There's an understanding there. Fellowship. Oh, we like koinonia. Yeah, what about the koinonia of His sufferings? To share into, to to fellowship with, to partake of, to commune with Jesus in suffering. Somehow, we're called to do that. Paul says the same thing. Philippians 3.10, he refers to the fellowship of His sufferings. Okay, how do I fellowship with the sufferings of Jesus? How do I experience in my suffering commonality with His suffering? Communion with His suffering? And this is where it gets very practical. What did He do? How did Jesus respond? How did Jesus bear up the weight of His sufferings? Do that! Do that and you share in the sufferings of Christ. Even if what you suffer is completely different than what Christ suffered, in that suffering, in that hardship or distress, do what He did when He suffered. And that's the answer. Granted, that's simplistic. And we have a whole letter that's going to teach us how to do this. But the truth is, as we follow His example, the Holy Spirit will form us and shape us after His image, His character. That's not just a a superficial thing. That is incredibly deep. You will start to notice the change in yourself. You will perceive the world differently. You will find a deeper comfort even in suffering than you could have thought possible. The Spirit does this and works this in us. And that's what I mean by saying suffering can be substantive. Suffering can be wholly valuable as we suffer in commonality with Christ. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps. Now wouldn't it be nice if then Peter would show us what that means if he would show us that example and he does. He does. Verse 22. Who committed no sin nor was any deceit found in His mouth. Here's some things to jot down. Number one, you want to suffer like Christ? You want to share in the sufferings of Jesus? Number one, suffer without regard to sin. That's the first key. If you're suffering because of sin, it's stupid suffering. The best that suffering because of sin can do is spin you around to help you stop sinning. To help you realize, wow, that was really dumb. Why do I keep doing that? The tragedy of suffering for sin is that we kind of continue doing it. We keep finding ourselves back in that stupid place again and again and again, though it causes us suffering. To share in the sufferings of Christ means to suffer without regard to sin. Isaiah 53, verse 8 says, He was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due his grave was assigned with wicked men yet he was with a rich man in his death why? because he had done no violence nor was there any deceit found in his mouth which is the quote that you see right there in verse 22 Isaiah 53 verse 9 see Jesus suffered for the sake of your sin my sin not his Share that kind of suffering. You can do the same, by the way. No, don't, don't get me wrong. You can't, you can't redeem someone by your suffering. But you can reveal the Redeemer to someone by your suffering. You can, in how you handle suffering, show someone the Savior. Point them to the Redeemer, the one who, by His suffering, does redeem, does heal. It, it, it's, if it's not for sin, how we suffer can reveal Jesus. It's like Job. picture of suffering in the Older Testament. Job 19.25, who in the midst of all of his sorrow and suffering said, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, He will take His stand on the earth. What a witness. What a testimony. In his sorrow and loss, in his physical pain, all manner of suffering on this man Job. And yet he said, I know, I know my Redeemer lives. What Job did not know, but we do, is that his Redeemer would end up suffering more than any man. That Jesus would go through more hardship, more pain than anyone has ever experienced and yet without regard to sin. And so what the point is here is that all suffering without regard to sin models redemption. Just as Christ our Redeemer suffered for us, Peter says, suffer that way. Follow in His steps. Do that who committed no sin nor was any deceit found in His mouth. Listen, if you're suffering because of foolish sin, that is no witness whatsoever. People look at that and go, he's going through a hard time because he's an idiot. Suffer without regard to sin. Now, if you have sinned and you're suffering for it, there's still an answer there. Confess. Confess the sin. Repent of it. Return to the Lord. Move on from the sin. As John said in 1 John 1, verse 8, If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, in following Jesus, in sharing in His sufferings, number one, suffer without regard to sin. Number two, suffer without reviling. Verse 23, continuing, And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. The word reviling here is interesting. Jesus did not revile. What does that mean? It's loido reo in the Greek, which is translated rail at or lash out. While Jesus suffered, he did not lash out. You see, a suffering victim always blames other people someone with the victim mentality is always pointing the finger and lashing out and railing on others or railing on God. You know, i, I got to say this. And I think I've made this point before but I probably will continue to make it. We live in a culture and, and this is not just this generation. We live in a culture going back as far as I can remember in my life that thinks it's okay to lash out at God. It's kind of cool. You know, it's casual. Listen, it is bad enough to drag others into my suffering by railing on them, but to rail against God? I understand, I I do, that, that we can lash out when we're irrational in pain. Pain does not tend to make us more reasonable beings. Smash your thumb with a hammer and you're not immediately going to go, wow, that really hurts. And I imagine what's happening right now inside my thumb is there is an inflammation taking place which is causing the pain receptors in my brain to shoot information to my thumb, which is why it hurts so horribly right now. No, we become irrational when we hurt. And it is hard to be reasonable when I'm hurting. But get this, understand this, this, this casual cultural attitude of, I'm mad at God. Really? I'm angry with Him. Yeah, yeah, I had it out with God the other day. Oh, you did, did you? Really, you did, huh? I told Him what's for. Who are you, Lieutenant Dan? <laughs> Up at the top of the crow's nest in the middle of a storm going, Bring it on, yeah! (laughs) Wow. Or maybe you think you're Job. 37 chapters of yakety yak, of railing at the situation and proclaiming his innocence and, and, and defending himself and calling out for a Redeemer. By the way, the Redeemer Job was calling for, it looks like he was calling for someone to redeem him against what God was doing for him. He's confused in the pain. He's lashing out in the pain. He's got those three friends and they're doing the same thing. They're not helping anyone. And then finally, in Job 38, we're told, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Man, I wish that would happen more often. You know, we say, oh, I'm just I'm mad at you, God. And the Lord says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Which is a beautiful, godly, divine way of saying, who's this moron? Who's the idiot here who's talking without thinking? God goes on and says to Job, gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, hey, and you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding... Who set its measurements, since clearly you know, or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went out from the womb? When I made a cloud its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, and I placed boundaries on it and set a bolt and doors, and I said, Thus far you shall come, but no farther, and here your proud waves shall stop. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning... And caused the dawn to know its place. And he goes on. Job 38, Job 39, and finally in Job chapter 40, the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. <laughs> and Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I'm insignificant. <laughs> what can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Gain the wisdom of Job here. Rather than railing at God, let's lay our hands on our mouths a little sooner. Hey, I understand, again, being angry with the situation. Even confused like a child that gets hurt and looks at mom and dad like, how could you let this happen to me? I get all of that. But to suffer without reviling, without lashing out, Without trying to make others, and especially Jesus, somehow pay for my pain? Jesus already did. And by the way, he already suffered beyond all comprehension. Would I add to that? Would I seek to increase the pain of Jesus? Go ahead and wail, and holler, and cry out. Just don't lash out. Bear your heart to the Lord, not your fist. Yes, cry to Him. Yes, share your pain with Him. Pull a David rather than a Job. Look at David in the Psalms crying out to the Lord. Sharing His broken heart. Sharing His broken life. In pain, calling upon His Father. And with every single Psalm, with one exception, finding resolution in the presence of God. He suffered without reviling. And that's Jesus. How do I suffer then without reviling or without railing on people? Number three, suffer by relinquishing control. Continuing on in verse 23, it says that Jesus kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously. And that is so absolutely key. Relinquish control. Stop trying to handle the situation and suffer and rail through it. Relinquish. Give it up to God. Over in First Peter 4.19, Peter said, Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful Creator in doing what is right. Listen, God is a righteous God. We know this. We've been over this so much throughout the Scriptures. God is going to make things right. He always makes right, even out of the worst wrongs that are done. Back in April of 2008, two theologians began a blog a a discussion online, writing back and forth, debating and contending over the issue of why God would allow so much suffering in the world. The first theologian was a man by the name of Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman, who's the James A. Gray Distinguished Professor of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. It's a big title. All I get is pastor. (laughs) This guy is the author of the book God's Problem, and this renowned theologian is an agnostic. Which goes to show you, as I've said before, you can study God and not know Him. The other theologian is N.T. Wright, Bishop of Durham for the Church of England, author of the book Evil and Justice of God. Well, Bart Ehrman, the agnostic, he wrote this. He said, Suffering increasingly became a problem for me and my faith. Anyone realize that suffering has been problematic in trusting God? In believing in Him? He said, if God is concerned to answer my little prayers about my daily life, why didn't He answer my and others' big prayers when millions were being slaughtered by the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia? Or when a mudslide killed 30,000 Colombians in their sleep in a matter of minutes? When disasters of all kinds caused by humans and nature happen in the world? That was His contention. If there's a God, how could He allow that? N.T. writes responded brilliantly saying what quote we would want God to do to have God measure up to our standards of how a proper and good and powerful God should be running the world that seems to be the very thing that Jesus was calling into question that there are people out there saying why isn't God doing it my way and Jesus' answer to that was your way (laughs) There's only one way. I am that way. Your way is not the way. Right. N.T. Wright was, was right. Because we think that we can take over divine control in an uncontrollable world. A world where free will, yes, runs roughshod and rampant, and where what is needed is not for me to rule my life, but to repent in it. Jesus taught that example back in Luke uh, chapter 13. Just listen to this. I-, I love this story. Some people came to him with the Bart Ehrman mentality of agnosticism. They come to Jesus in Luke 13 verse 1. says, On the same occasion there are some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. These people who had suffered needlessly by Rome... And Jesus answered, listen to this answer. Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then He pushes it further. He says, or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. No. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. These people come to Jesus looking for a vengeance answer, and He says, the issue is not vengeance, the issue is repentance. And He adds to it this senseless, needless suffering of these 18 people who were killed when a tower fell, and that wasn't their fault. They were just there, and they and now all their families suffered. And what does Jesus turn that into? A lesson for Repentance. Because the issue is turning to God. Whether I'm suffering or not, whether it's fair or not, God makes right. I don't. I can't. And so to suffer by relinquishing control recognizes He's already got the control. And try as I might, I cannot control. And Jesus Himself, again, look at Jesus for suffering. Jesus modeled giving up control. Jesus modeled, relinquishing His power. He made Himself of no reputation. He emptied Himself, the Bible tells us in Philippians 2. And then what do we see in the garden? Matthew 26.39, He says, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from Me, yet, not as I will, but as You will. And He prayed that. Wow, suffering. We see Him at Calvary. Calvary. Nailed to the cross, Luke 23:34, saying, "Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing." And we hear in Luke 23:46 that crying out with a loud voice, Jesus said, "Father, into your hands I commit my spirit." See, that's relinquishing control, And that's how to share in the sufferings of Christ. You relinquish your control. You entrust yourself to Him who judges righteously. And listen to this, it's important. Romans 8.28 We know that God causes all things to work together for good. And people stop right there. Oh, He just makes good out of everything. No. He works all things together for good to those who love God. To those who are called according to His purpose. That is, all things good comes of relinquishing all control to God Himself. And in so doing, you share in the sufferings of Jesus. But but look a little further. Peter continues in verse 24. says, And He, that is Jesus Himself, bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Number four, suffer for righteousness' sake. Can my suffering kill off my sin and reveal His righteousness to someone else? See, what happens is when we hurt, we tend to get drawn inward. When we're suffering, we tend to fall into that place of self-pity where everything and everyone in the world seems against us. That's what self-pity does. When I start to go into myself, everything looks dark and, and, and opposed to me. But, but, when I relinquish control, when I trust Jesus, I begin to understand something, and this is huge in all suffering, that perhaps what I'm suffering is not about me at all. Maybe it has nothing to do with me Now I think all suffering does have something to do with me when I suffer because God is sanctifying me and working in me. But sometimes the picture is so much bigger than myself, but if I'm in this place, I can't see that. All I see is my hurt. If I'm relinquishing, if I'm trusting, then I begin to suffer for righteousness' sake. Jesus said, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. That's suffering for righteousness' sake. For the righteousness even of others, Jesus lived, He suffered, and He died to make right for everyone else. His suffering was wholly others-centered. And again, remember, His suffering is our example. Who bore our sins in His body on the cross. And then, the end of verse 24, he says, For by his wounds you were healed. Get this. Again, this is another Isaiah 53 text. Peter's text for the whole letter. For by his wounds you were healed. Isaiah 53, verse 5, He was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and the chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Healed. So, number five, suffer for restoration. Talking about sharing in the sufferings of Christ, suffer for restoration. Paul wrote in Galatians 6 1 Brethren, even if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourselves, so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. But hey, what if that trespass? What if that burden is against you? Listen again. If anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. What if the sin's against you? I'm supposed to restore it then? What if the burden is is on you? What if in a relationship gone awry, you're the one being scourged? Are you willing to take that? Would you accept the unfair suffering on yourself because of something someone else is doing? Would you accept the nail scars of another person's anger? The chastening of someone else's wrongdoing? The scourging they deserve? Would you accept that? If, in fact, it might offer the hope of their healing. This is a radical, 180 degree way of thinking from how we live in this world. That God, 2 Corinthians 5.19, was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, even though their trespasses were against Him, He didn't count them, And he has committed now to us the word of reconciliation. This is what Jesus did. And again, I know his blood is pure, it's perfect, it's restorational, and mine is not. But can I follow his lead? Can I at least share in commonality his sufferings, his attitude as I suffer in my life? Can I just be like him? What Peter's teaching us here by the Spirit is to share in the sufferings of Christ, is to suffer without regard to sin, It's to suffer without reviling, to suffer relinquishing control, to suffer for righteousness' sake, and to suffer for the restoration of others. That is suffering like Jesus suffered. Peter sat there, quietly, taking it all in, listening to Jesus. The waters of the nearby Galilee lapped quietly on the shore. The fire was crackling. The smell of fish and bread was in the air. And Peter listened, struggling with all that he had learned and all truly that he had done. And he heard Jesus say, If you love me, Peter, feed my lambs. He heard Jesus say, If you love me, Peter, shepherd my sheep. And finally, he said, Peter, if you even like me, feed my sheep. And Peter would eventually embrace that shepherd's call. He got it. We see it beautifully in this very letter, verse 25 of chapter 2, For you were continually straying like sheep. But now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. How could Peter write that? Because he knew it. Because he himself had strayed and had been returned to the shepherd and guardian of souls. Add this to the list and we're done this morning. Suffer to return. Suffer to return. You want to share in the sufferings of Jesus, add meaning and purpose and, and value and substance to your suffering, suffer to return. That is, first and foremost, let any and all suffering return you to Jesus, rather than drive you away. Again, it's the distance between bearing my heart and bearing my fist, that I come to Jesus. When I'm hurting, when I'm suffering, I return to Him again and again. It is a beautiful wake-up call. C.S. Lewis refers to it that way. Pain being God's way of waking us up, of pulling us out of the doldrums and reminding us that He is there, of drawing us back to Himself, suffer to return first to Jesus, and then suffer unto His return. That is, He's coming. He's coming. And that to me makes any suffering worthwhile to know. as long term as it may seem in my short life, that suffering is unto the ultimate return of Jesus. And on that same beach, John 21:18, Jesus said to Peter, "Truly truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself, walk wherever you wished. but when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands. And someone else will gird you and bring you to where you do not wish to go. John writes that this Jesus said signifying by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. And when Jesus had spoken this, he said those two words that he said the first time he saw Peter on the beach, follow me. Follow me. What is the painful, perfect lesson that Peter learned? To share in the sufferings of Christ. To follow Him. To live by His lead and His example. And by the way, Jerome tells us a story of Peter. I can't verify it, but it's interesting and it was told quite a bit in the early church. That when Peter was there in Rome having written 1 Peter and send it out, and then all of a sudden this wave of persecution began coming in big time from Nero. Peter's there, and the church in Rome said, Peter, we got to get you out. You need to flee, because we need you, Peter. We need your teaching. We need the relationship you have with Jesus. You're our man. we got to protect you. <laughs> it's kind of like when we first heard about a church shooting. The very next elders meeting we had, Brian Martin wanted to buy a bulletproof pulpit. <laughs> gotta protect Rick and I'm like you know what no I I, I can't even imagine someone comes in guns blazing and I'm ducking behind the bulletproof pulpit while you're getting blown away (laughs) I will die with you brethren (laughs) but the people in, in the church at Rome that was the mentality we gotta protect Peter Peter you gotta get out finally he was convinced so he left He's on his way out of Rome. He gets to one of the many gates. He's making his way through the gate. And as the story goes, he had in that moment a vision of Jesus. Lord, Peter said, where are you going? What are you doing? And Jesus said to Peter, I am come again to be crucified. And Peter got it. He realized Jesus' understanding of his own suffering, so Peter returned to the city where he was crucified head down by his own request in 65 A.D. And Peter learned the lesson to share in the sufferings of Christ. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has given us an example to follow. The question is, will we? Will we learn to share in His sufferings? Jesus has given us an example to follow. His example. And so the question of the letter and this morning is will we share in the sufferings of Christ?